hope you'll enjoy this episode of Women Worth Knowing. Make sure you rate us on your podcast app, subscribe, and share it with a friend. This is Cheryl Broderson in studio with the famous, the infamous, the wonderful, the knowledgeable. Oh, dear. <laughs> Jasmine Allnut. That's right. I don't know if I'm all this. Maybe infamous. I'll go with that. Inf- yeah. <laughs> well, very knowledgeable. Oh, right. Oh, sure. So this is this is a podcast that Jasmine has been wanting to do for yes. a really, really long time. It's true. And I finally found a spot to sneak her in. She's such a great one. And that is Elizabeth Fry. That's right. who we're going to be talking and, about. And the reason we're doing this is we're kind of uh, right now in a series on medical medical women of distinction. Would right. that be a good way to say Whoa, it? Whoa, medical women of I like that. That's kind of where we're headed right now. And it's cool because she's— uh, yeah, she kind of bridges that uh, gap between social reformers and medicine. She's like in both of those arenas. And what we found, too, is that so many of, you know, as we go further into this series, when we're we're going to be dealing with nurses and we'll talk about some doctors, all of them either knew of Elizabeth Fry mm-hmm. and she was inspirational yes. to their story. Yeah. yeah. And they were influenced or they were inspired by Elizabeth Fry. Yes. So that's yeah. why she's definitely a woman worth knowing. Yes, she is. Nice. Good segue, huh? <laughs> that was a good one. So, yeah. So Elizabeth Fry, like Cheryl said, she really um, made quite an impact. Um, she was uh, most known as England's most significant prison reformer, actually. Uh, in fact, for many years, she was on the British five-pound note. little fun fact there. And then they switched to Churchill in 2016. So there you go. In case anybody's wondering, they switched oh, it over from just her. recently yeah. then. No, yeah, she was on there for ago. quite a while. Right. So I was always so excited when I first, when my parents were first living in England and I'd go over there because I was teaching church history and talking about her. And I'm like, oh, wait, I know her, you know, so it was of very her. exciting. Well, yeah, I don't know her personally. Right? Yes. We will in heaven. <laughs> but isn't that interesting? Because as we're, you know, studying and looking at these women and many of these women, um, because we have such high regard and again, because they're also Christians, they're part of the family of God. Mm. There is this kind of heart connection, isn't there? There is. There really is. Yes, these are all our, our friends and family. And I feel that way totally when I study these people for so long. It's like, I know them. I can't wait to, you know, give them a big hug. And introduce, a COVID-free hug in heaven. Yes, and introduce <laughs> and introduce yeah. other women exactly. and men to these wonderful women of distinction. Exactly, exactly. So, um, Elizabeth Fry was born May 21st, 1780. And so that's kind of why, like Cheryl said, she inspired and influenced others because uh, she was kind of one of those really early figures. Um, we're going back a little bit here, right? And, so, and to put it in the context, this is the Jane Jane Austen, Jane Austen era. Yeah, we're getting into that. Era, right. Uh, Anna Moore, who we talked Hannah about Moore. already. We're going to, yeah, there's some overlap with these so lives. So this would be called the, um, we know it kind of as the Georgian time. Right. Because yep. this is when the the Georges, uh, so to speak, the King, King Georges, George, yep. were over, yeah, yep. reigning over England. Mm-hmm. But also, this is also in the United States at the same time that Elizabeth Fry is born, comes into the world. America's uh, four years old. Yeah, just a baby country. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So she's born to uh, Joseph and Catherine Gurney. That was her maiden name, Gurney. And and they were uh, a wealthy Quaker family. Uh, the Gurneys were actually in banking, and so they were connected to the Barclays. And that's kind of a significant, if you know anything about England, Barclays Bank is still in existence today. Uh, that was a Quaker bank as well. I believe Lloyd's is also uh, a Quaker connection. And I so, don't know. When I lived there, all these friends of mine were like, oh, Cheryl, you have to go with Barclays. Oh, yeah. Uh, 
there are members of Barclays family still today who are very um, active in the evangelical community. Well, there you go. That's and interesting. There's That's a really couple cool. of, um, one of the oldest states of the Barclays is a conference center for Christian conferences. Whoa. That's really cool. In Hailey. Hey. Mm-hmm. Fun fact. Look at that. So yeah. cool. I like that. There's there's still a remnant. Mm-hmm. That's encouraging. So yeah. So there was this uh, there was this uh, spiritual this Quaker connection with all of the banking industry. Interesting in, in England. And so they were you know uh, her family the Gurneys they were rather devout in in the sense that they went to they always attended meeting you know the Quaker friends meetings. Um, but they were a little bit on the unconventional side. They were um, intellectual, a little more. Uh, open. They they were kind of considered materialistic, some of the gurneys, and open to some of the aspects of the Enlightenment and reason and all of that sort of a thing. Uh, they were big on educating their kids, um, even the girls. But you got to remember that for the Quakers, that wasn't necessarily a big deal. The Quakers were some of the first really, truly egalitarian households. Yeah, yeah. Christians, you know, we think, you know, we think even in the—remember when we were talking about uh, the anti-slavery movement and how they were— uh, the first to some of the first to really value all men as made in the image of God and really actually apply that. A lot of people talked about it, but they applied it and lived it out a little there better. There was a branch of the Quakers that did, and there mm-hmm. was a branch of the Quakers that well, didn't. Yeah, you'd have Once the they came to yes. the United States, there were some Quakers, unfortunately, that were slaveholders, but the right. majority of Quakers were not. And they yeah. were, they did strong, the ones who really held to the Lord, so to speak, mm-hmm. they were very egalitarian and believed in the equality of all men because all men were created by God and all men bore the image yeah, of God. Yeah, bore the image of God, exactly. And that's kind of what we were talking about earlier, too, that they mm-hmm. believed that all men had the possibility of an inner light. Yes, yeah, exactly. Which is what they believe, the life of God in them and mm-hmm. therefore God speaking to them. Yeah, there's the possibility that you can awaken that in every person. They had better treatment even of the Native Americans. I mean, uh, John Woolman was the big—I won't get into all of that, but John Woolman was the guy who really began to establish the anti-slavery movement, and he was a Quaker. So, But, but let's talk about women in this time. Yes. Even, like, Jane Austen was such a novelty, and, mm-hmm. and many of the women authors in those days mm-hmm. would write under male pseudonyms mm-hmm. because— Nobody would read them otherwise. Right. Yeah. Because they were women. Yeah. And they wouldn't be published. So they had to use male pseudonyms. Mm-hmm. Um, and Jane Austen was one of the first to break through. I think she began with male pseudonyms, mm. if I'm yeah, not— Yeah, she did. I think you're right. Yeah. And then went to her own once her uh, books gained popularity. Yes. So for a woman to have education, again, was— uh, pretty much limited to the Quakers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the Quakers and a few, like you said, Jane Austen, Hannah Moore, if you remember mm-hmm. her, there were a few outsiders, but that was so rare. It, so the Quakers as a group were unusual. So women in those days usually weren't, didn't learn reading. Mm. They didn't learn, you know, obviously writing or, you know, other languages unless they picked it up. Right. But they weren't formally educated. Right. So, yeah, so exactly. So this was— yes. Yes, and also education usually then was either boarding schools or it was done by governesses or the mothers in the household. Right, right, exactly. And so, you know, they also remember also the Quakers uh, promoted women uh, preaching in ministry. You know, we talked Mm -hmm. uh, already uh, about—we've talked about Catherine Booth and the Mm -hmm. Salvation Army and everything. But long before that, they came along. The Quakers were already uh, really encouraging women in ministry, and that's going to come into play here. So from the time Elizabeth was young, she was— a deep feeler. That's something that's really, uh, if you read about her early life, that's something that really stands out. Um, she could be kind of shy, but she, she was also very emotionally high strung. 
And she, it's interesting, she wrote about a lot of her struggles and weaknesses in her journals, but later she kind of eradicated some of that stuff because she thought it would paint either her family or her early life in a bad light. Uh, later, some of her daughters, when uh, Elizabeth became famous and biography-worthy, they kind of purged some of those things out. It's kind of interesting. But um, from what remains, and I have a biography here that's excellent. It really, like, delves into all the research and all the journals and everything, we get a picture of, of her as just a very normal girl. Um, and she was full of so many fears and insecurities, low self-esteem. A lot of women struggle with that. A lot of girls struggle with that. And so she's very relatable in that way from the time she was young. She also struggled with um, depression, not to mention physical illness. Um, she struggled in school. And it's interesting, a lot of that had to do with the fact that because she was so afraid all the time, she had a lot of nightmares when she was a kid, and so she didn't sleep very well. And so she would have a hard time focusing in school. And she compared herself to her older sisters so who were she, just so vibrant. She went to school? Was it a Quaker school then? Mm, I'm trying to remember exactly where, where what she would. She might have, they were, I think they were homeschooled initially. And then, yeah. yeah. But in, in her school work, she really right. struggled. And her sisters, who were older than her, were so... Uh, just lively, vivacious, well-spoken. And she just looked at them and thought, man, I'm the dumb one. She <laughs> always just felt so dumb, even though she wasn't, as we're going to see. But, you know, there might be people listening who can relate to feeling those kinds of insecurities and I'm not good enough and I'm not smart enough. And so uh, her intensity of feeling and fears really hampered her. And sometimes they would even almost ruin family events <laughs> because she would get so worked up that they'd have to like get her calmed down, whatever was bothering her. And, and I just, you, you read her story and you really grow to love her mom because her mom was so patient with her and tried to bring some stability to her young life. Um, but what's really cool about this, and the reason I want to really emphasize a lot of her fears and insecurities as a girl was because her biographer pointed this out, and I think it's so true. He said, you know, she was very intense and very passionate, and that was a weakness in her life when she was young, but God would later turn that into a strength as she would come to fight for the underprivileged, others who struggled. She related and understood. And I just was thinking about like how that's probably kind of what Paul meant when he said that God's strength is made perfect in our weakness, because he can turn those weaknesses that are just like, oh my gosh, am I ever going to get over this? He can turn those things into a strength where we see that is God. I can't take any credit for this one. I mean, I love that about her story. If you read like what she was when she was younger and how the Lord gave her victory, you see that it was the Lord in her. So um, in her early years, she really had a hard time with God, especially after mo her mom died. Again, her mom had been kind of a rock for her, but her mom died when she was 12. Mm. And uh, she just had a hard time connecting with God after that. Not only that, but they were forced to go to, to meeting, to the Quaker meetings, um, as even as kids. And so when you're young, you know, you're sitting there kind of getting jittery, and they just, you know, she and her siblings just felt like, oh, these meetings are so boring and dry. So, you know, she's growing up, and again, remember that her dad especially was a little more liberal, and he's like, oh, you know, enlightenment, all of that sort of thing. Uh, she kind of uh, explored Unitarianism, some other religious ideas that were fashionable during that time. Uh, like her sisters, she was also attracted to uh, worldly things. Remember, this is a rich family. They have anything they want at their disposal, and so it's easy to get sucked into that sort of thing. Um, apparently, the Fry girls were all really good-looking as well. And so they had, you know, they had that going on. Uh, and it's funny, even though Elizabeth was like the moody one and she could be kind of erratic, she actually turned a lot of heads. And it was so funny because her sisters would write and there's like journal entries from them like, I don't know why that guy is looking at Elizabeth if they only knew what a mess she is, you know, because she would just be so, 
they, they knew her like moody side and temperamental side. And they're like, why are the guys into her? So <laughs> it's kind of funny. But, um, you know, she's experiencing just like, like I said, just this constant lack of peace and she's unsettled and, you know, just not comfortable in her own skin and all that sort of a thing. And uh, yeah, and she knew that her internal restlessness and her struggles indicated that there was something missing in her life. She's like, what is going on? I can't put my finger on it. And so it's neat because her uncle Joseph was a little bit more spiritually minded uh, Quaker than maybe her dad and her the rest of her family. And he could see that there was something inside of Elizabeth that was, was different from her siblings. And so um, he brought her, he invited her to come in here, an American Quaker that was visiting a preacher, and his name was William Savory. And that really began the start of, I guess you could say, Elizabeth's spiritual awakening where she got saved. And, you know, and I love that. Her uncle Joseph could see, like, I know what's bothering you. You need Jesus. <laughs> and, you, and you're wrestling against him and not sure what to do. And that's such an important aspect of this whole testimony mm. because here she is a Quaker. Yeah. And sometimes we identify with, like, our denomination. And sure. so we assume that we're saved. Yeah. And that maybe, you know— so God's not the answer because we're already a Quaker. Yeah. When yeah. really the answer is to really know your God and exactly. know the God of your fathers. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And she didn't really know him yet. So that's a great point. And so, you know, through William Savory and his passion for the Lord, she began to realize that was what was missing in her life. And so I guess technically you could say she got saved when she was 18 through his preaching and that sort of a thing. Uh, but she, you know, continued to work through a lot of struggles with her just emotional nature, being drawn to the world. She's just having, you know, this back and forth kind of a thing. And she began to really depend on uh, William Savory uh, spiritually, kind of look to him as like a spiritual uh, father. Actually, there was a point where, because he was a single guy, he was significantly older than her, but there was a point where she's like, am I in love with him? It wasn't. Nothing ever inappropriate happened, but I think she just kind of latched on to him. And really, it was more like a spiritual father figure for her. And, and she kind of just looked to him to um, sustain her walk with God, especially because nobody else in her immediate family really uh, understood her. They all thought she was becoming one of those enthusiasts, as we've talked about before, like, you're too enthusiastic. And she started dressing like a plain Quaker. Uh, those were the conservative, simple dress ones. And they're like, with the Quaker hats. What? With the Quaker hats. Yeah, the the hats. women were like long. I mean, what were they broad rimmed? Yeah, the big bonnet thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. And very plain clothing, like browns and blacks, like not drawing attention to herself. And they just thought, oh my gosh, Elizabeth's going nuts. And so, you know, she needed somebody in her life. Um, and then uh, it's neat because later that same year, so she has William Savory kind of pouring into her in a way, but then, uh, and her uncle Joseph, and then uh, this older Quaker woman named Deborah Darby prophesied over her. And she said, you are born to be a light to the blind, speech to the dumb, and feet to the lame. And Elizabeth is like, me? Are you, are you serious? Like, she really, she didn't know what to make of that at the time. But we're going to see later on how the Lord did work those things out in her life. But in the moment, she was a little bit skeptical. So, <laughs> um, but the thing with Elizabeth was um, she had always been drawn to the poor and the needy. Uh, she was just, from the time she was a little girl, she gravitated towards those that were downtrodden. And um, when she was little, she loved uh, going with her mom to visit and provide assistance to their poor neighbors and stuff. That was a very common thing. If you had a lot of money, you would go and uh, do charity, you know, charity baskets and things like that. Um, I remember in Pollyanna, the old, old Disney movie, right, where they would go and take the calf's foot jelly and all that stuff. <laughs> but that was the kind of, that was just a very normal thing that you would do. 
Um, but for Elizabeth, it was just something she loved. It wasn't just like a duty. It was something she loved to do. Uh, and so not surprisingly, as a young Christian, she starts doing the same thing. She begins to serve the Lord in, in practical ways like this. And we're going to see this really becomes a trademark of a relationship with the Lord, uh, that it was, it was very practical. Um, one biographer said, uh, Elizabeth was not a great mystic, though prayer was a source of strength, but she found it easier to be very practical, and this led her to make great efforts to help other people. And, and I love how the Lord uh, wires us all very differently, you know, because there are some that are writers and that are a little bit more on the mystical side that want to encourage people to go deeper into the spiritual life. And then there's nuts and bolts people like Elizabeth who just want to get their hands dirty and get into the, you know, nitty-gritty and uh, helping people and serving in practical ways. And I, I don't know, we were talking about that even early today, earlier today in our Jonah study, like the importance of putting feet to our faith and really walking in those uh, things practically that the Lord puts in front of us, um, you know, not just to speak. But so to now, how old act. is she when she has that religious experience? She was 18. And 18. so she, this is heading now into like her early 20s, mm -hmm. you know. But she got married when she was 20. Yes, exactly. And so— uh, That's why that's, I was curious. Yeah, 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 yeah. If, if her conversion was—because I couldn't, I couldn't remember this, if her conversion was before or after she got married. So it's about right. two years before. Yeah, a little bit beforehand. Yeah, exactly. And she's starting to do, like I said, just mm -hmm. walking in these things. But she's still dealing with issues in her life and stuff like that. Uh, so she—but she throws herself into helping those in need, uh, particularly the poor and the mentally ill. And that's going to come mm. into play a little bit later. Um, she would often, like I said, go into the community to bring food and practical assistance. And sometimes it would kind of scandalize her family. We've, you know, talked about a lot of women who uh, would reach out in ways that were considered inappropriate because you're a, a upper class well-to-do person. This is not appropriate to go to these needy people. And she would literally just pull up a stool or get down right there in these little hovels with the people and talk to them just on such a uh, equal level that it made people uncomfortable. Um, but she wrote about how she felt so comfortable and so in her element among the poor, which is so cool. I, I just love that. And, and you see here that, you know, the Lord is working. This is the beginning of the fulfillment, really, of that prophecy, whether she realized it or not. And she's just walking in something she loved, something that she just gravitated towards. Um, so she did, like Cheryl said, marry uh, Joseph Fry, uh, also a banker, Fry's Bank. That was at the time another banking family <laughs> in 1800. And uh, they were plain Quakers as well. Uh, and so um, there was that connection initially, like, oh, he's a plain Quaker. I'm a plain Quaker. And they started a family. Um, but throughout her 20s. This is also, uh, though, when she moved to London. Right. Because that's also important because she yes. was from Norwich. Yeah, she was Norwich. from Norwich and moved. Yes, exactly. And moved down to London. Mm -hmm. So this is going to open up something, too, because yeah. Norwich is more, in those days, more of a village, right? Mm -hmm. So you can Countryside. Call, you yeah. pretty much know the names and the history of everyone you're helping. Yes. But moving to London, especially in that because you're on the cusp of the um, Industrial Revolution, there was so much poverty. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And so now she's gonna... she's gets married. She's a young bride. She's moving to London, and it's the big city. Oh yeah. And to you know, it's one thing if you know they visited or shopped. Sure. But now to live there amongst all this, where this is a reality, a daily reality. Yeah. And that's going to play a big role, exactly, in opening doors that the Lord would have her walk through. That's great. And so. Um, Throughout her, you know, 20s, again, she got married when she was 20, and then throughout the, that next decade, um, she's a wife, and then she becomes a mom, and she really um, 
you know, struggled. And it's just so interesting. Again, you, you read her story and you see all of these ups and downs and her emotional struggles and all that sort of thing. And I love that. It's just so raw and so real. You know real. what? I think that was the biggest surprise to me, though, when I was reading her biography mm. was to read about the emotional struggles. Yeah. Because, you know, again, she's so inspirational yeah. to all these women. Yeah. And what she does is so novel for that time, so amazing for that time. And it took so much strength and perseverance, mm-hmm. and as we'll see, yeah, because yeah. she's really famous for something we haven't gotten to yes. yet. <laughs> and so, exactly, and and so that's what makes this so remarkable, and that's why I wanted to highlight so much, you know, how the Lord transformed her and used her. So, um, but, uh, some of her struggles came from Joseph's family. Actually, they were pretty judgmental of her, and he himself, she realized, wasn't quite as uh, diligent. He was, he could be a little bit lazy. You know, these are wealthy families, and he wasn't really a super motivated, hard worker. Uh, he also wasn't as spiritually minded as as she had thought he was before they got married. Um, the one good thing about him, as we're going to see, was that he was really easygoing and ended up being quite supportive of her. And that's really remarkable. That's going to play a big role later on. So uh, more and more, you know, she's feeling prompted to reach out to those in need, to preach the gospel. And remember, for Quaker women, they were an enabled, empowered to do that. You know, you could go to Quaker meeting, and if a woman had a word, she could stand up and share. Um, but she's continually hampered by these uh, physical maladies, by depression. Uh, another thing, too, it was very common to treat conditions, whether it was physical, emotional, mental conditions, uh, to treat those things with alcohol and opium. Uh, that was common back then. I don't know if they didn't realize just how addictive opium was at the time, but these were just common things that were used. And you know, she would, you know, use them and then feel like so condemned, like, oh, I don't want to get, you know, too hooked on this stuff. And I I don't want to make this such a big part of my life. So she's working through all these things. Uh, Again, the debilitating fears that she had in childhood started to crop up again, especially concerning uh, death. And it's really interesting. Um, This is something it's like, oh yeah, we don't always think about this from our modern perspective, but Elizabeth was petrified every time she got pregnant. Because so many women died in labor. I right. mean, and I mean, infant mortality, everything right. was so high. And by 1912, she already had eight children. 1812. Yeah. 1812. I mean, yes. She by had so many. She had yes. Eight children. Yeah. That's a lot of children. It's nuts. She ended up with 12 altogether, which is honestly a miracle when you read about how terrified she was of pregnancy. Mm-hmm. And it just, I don't know, sometimes when you read these stories, it's a reminder too to like put ourselves in their shoes and realize like how scary that was back then. You, I mean, you really weren't. Nowadays, it's like, yay, I'm pregnant. I'm having a baby. Let's do a gender reveal party. Let's do all this stuff. Back then it was like, oh my gosh, I might die. Yeah. You know, I well, mean. <laughs> they didn't have the hospital care. Exactly. Uh, mothers had their births at home. And the, the infant mortality rate, and as you said too, the mother mortality rate was really high because they didn't mm. have um, this is before Joseph Lister. So this is before people begin to wash their hands. Yes. And he was the one who changed the whole infant mortality and uh, mortality rate for the moms because he said, let's just clean our hands. <laughs> let's just <laughs> and when he first when he first suggested that he was he was mocked. mocked. Right. So anyway, it was a dangerous thing yeah, to have a baby. It really was. And so, I mean, again, it is a, it is miraculous that she had so many. Mm-hmm. But so she's walking through all these things, dealing with all of these issues. But it's so cool. When she was 29, um, she experienced kind of a, a transformation in her relationship with the Lord. And it happened at the death of her father. Um, you know, after he, he had been kind of her world, you know, especially after mom died and everything. Um, and after he died, when he died, she went into the room, you know, to just kind of say her goodbyes after he'd passed. And, and 
um, she fell on her knees mm. and just started worshiping the Lord. This worship song came out of her. And honestly, I think this was probably the moment when she was filled with the Holy Spirit. It was like the Lord had, you know, she just really gave him full surrender of her life. And she said, I am like a little bottle that has long been corked up and pressed down. And now there is an opening made and much appears to run out. Mm. <laughs> and it, so really, it, there was just this transformation. And from here on, we start seeing her walk in victory over these fears. I mean, she was still very human and struggled, you know, because we all are. And there's some things we get immediate deliverance from. And then there's some things the Lord like Process. works in us mm -hmm. over time. And so it's amazing to see how the Lord led her from this point on. And so soon after this moment, she begins to have all this victory. And uh, the Lord now begins to really launch her into ministry. Um, she's continuing to visit the poor. And she starts speaking a little more frequently at the Quaker meetings and realizing like people are really starting to respond to what she has to share because she's just being led by the Holy Spirit and really feeling prompted. So a couple years later, 1813, friend of the fries, friend of the family, goes and visits the women's section of Britain's largest and most notorious prison, which is Newgate Prison. Let's talk about what prisons were like and what oh, Newgate yeah, yeah, prison gonna, was. Yeah, definitely. It was, it was pretty horrific. He was horrified by what he saw. And he went and told Elizabeth all he had seen there. And she's like, no way. There's no way it's this bad. I need to see this for myself. And she was shocked. Now, <laughs> when she went, she was like, wow, he, it was even worse than he said. Now, we have to keep in mind, of course, that this was the Industrial Revolution starting. And Cheryl kind of mentioned that before. And we have to understand, like, what was going on during this time. Um, the under Industrial Revolution was great. It brought about uh, dramatic advances in technology that have really obviously benefited us to this day. But it brought about a ton of social problems. For centuries, England had been primarily agricultural. I mean, Europe was in general, right? Um, most of the population lived on farms. They're all in the countryside and in the small towns. But then you start having with uh, industry, you have the building of factories. And then there was this practice in England that began during this time called enclosure, where they were starting to close off the common lands that the poor people and, and you know, the peasants could use for farming. They started enclosing them and developing private property. And so all these people are getting displaced. It's like, great, what do we do now? they start going to, you know, where the factories are for work. Right. But also, too, they don't have the skills. Yeah, so they're they coming the, yep. in and they're applying for these jobs that they don't have the skills. Mm. They're working with um, mechanisms and they're getting hurt. Yes. Oh, and gosh. It's so they're, dangerous. They're, because they don't have enough money to make it in the city, they're having their children work. And a lot mm. of the wives are having to work. Mm -hmm. So you're creating this just this— this huge mess because oh, it wasn't thought out. It just not happened exactly. suddenly. And that's huge because that's why I think it's appropriate to call it the Industrial Revolution because it really mm -hmm. was revolutionary. It was a total upheaval that nobody was prepared for. Uh, exactly. I mean, you have this these people, this great influx into factory towns and cities. And so there's this urban population boom, again, like Cheryl said, that nobody was expecting or prepared for. People are concentrated into small spaces. Um, and it was like nobody had foreseen this or how to— uh, you know, knew how to, it. yeah, there were no such things as child labor laws or, you know, protections for women in the factories. Like you were saying, people were getting injured and wounded. Um, there's a lot of other issues, just social people problems, I guess you could call them. Uh, crime, poverty, 
homelessness, uh, prostitution, alcoholism. The drugs, as you mentioned, too, were yes. new because those were coming in. Now the opium from China. Yep. yep. And that, that was, was new huge. in these opium dens because people didn't know how to handle their yes, lives. Yes, exactly. It was so, like, overwhelming and depressing and challenging. Plus, you know, we think of, too, like, you know, we have six-day work weeks or five-day work yeah. weeks, but they had seven-day work weeks, yep. some of them. Yeah, because there were no protection. Like I said, mm-hmm. yeah, no child labor laws, none of that. And so there's abandoned children, illiteracy, poor sanitation, disease. The list goes on. And that included the prison system. That was one of the other, you know, areas of society that was completely just in chaos. It's a catch-all. Exactly. It's a catch-all. So you're going to have everything from um, murderers to the insane, because there's not asylums at this time. Yeah, there's no mental protection. And so uh, to the diseased, Mm -hmm. and they're there because they're sick and they can't afford. So it's like a debtor's prison. Um, So you're going to have—and people will go there with their families. Yep. It It really—catch-all is a good word for it. It wasn't just individuals who had broken the law. This is going to be a a catch-all, and we'll we'll go into more of it because Mm -hmm. it is a little disturbing. You know, spoil alert or whatever, (laughs) protection or, you know, our next program. We're going to kind of um, talk about the prisons because this is a mission field that is unlike any mission Mm. field, but it's so close at hand. Mm -hmm. And it was a mission field that Elizabeth could not ignore because it was in her own backyard. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. So when we come to the next program, mm-hmm. you're gonna now we're gonna talk about Elizabeth, this girl who had all these insecurities, mm. and how God begins to open this door to her, and it's this open door that she walks through that is going to put her on the uh, what do you say, kind of on the map, so to speak, yeah. so that she will become an inspiration mm. to so many women mm. and men. Yeah. Who will follow after her. Yeah. So this has been part one of Elizabeth Fry, and we can't wait for next week because you don't want to miss it. Absolutely not. (laughs) Okay, so Elizabeth Fry, a woman worth knowing. Yep. And part two next week. See you soon. Thank you for listening to Women Worth Knowing with Cheryl Broderson and Jasmine Allnett. For more information on Cheryl, visit CherylBroderson.com or follow her on Instagram or Facebook. You can also follow Jasmine on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. If you think there is a woman worth knowing, we'd love to hear from you. Email us at wwk at cccm.com. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode. Make sure you've subscribed and don't forget to rate us on your podcast app and share it with friends. Thank you again for listening to Women Worth Knowing with Cheryl Broderson and Jasmine Allnutt.